If you have a Bible, open to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we're going to continue again in our series through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the text up on the screen for you. If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, you're visiting with us today, would you um, head to the Commons bookstore and Aaron there will make sure that you get outfitted with one. That will be our gift to you. Romans chapter 5 is where we are and we're going to be in verses 6 to 11 this morning. Uh, the beginning of June, I went on a backpacking trip with some guys from church, some other pastors, and uh, we went to Mount Baldy, which I had never been before, uh, kind of in the Greer area of the state. And on the second day, our plan was to ascend the mountain and kind of hang out at the top and then descend and then camp for the night. And so that morning, we got all our packs on, we're getting ready to go, and we start kind of trudging up the mountain. And the guy who was kind of our unofficial guide, he, he had been there before, at least been to this area before, he kept saying to us, it's just a little bit further. Just keep going. I think it's just right up here, right? Just keep going. I think it's just right here. And you can only hear that so many times when you're hauling a pack up a mountain to where you have serious doubts about that guy. And you definitely don't want to hear it's just a little bit further anymore. But we finally did make it. And I'm so glad we did because the reward at the top is incredible. It's this breathtaking view. You're looking down. It looks, it doesn't look anything like Arizona, at least a part of Arizona that I'd ever seen. And it's just, just this lush kind of forest and woods and this huge valley. And we're looking through, of course, you're, you're kind of looking at it like this. But you still get to see it, and it was, it was really a, a breathtaking view. And I feel like where we are in this section in, in the book of Romans, so chapter 5 through 8, really is kind of like that. We've been climbing up this hill and doing the hard work of talking about who we are because of sin and our separation from God and even objections to our desire to try to fix it on our own and seeing that we can't do anything to get out of our, our own way and help our own situation and kind of working through all those things. And now we start start and we're and, and really the next little section that we're going to be in here this 5 through 8 is really this breathtaking view uh, of the gospel and at the top of this mountain and Tim talked about this when he talked uh, spoke the other week the, this truth of justification God's declaration of innocence over those who have become Christians and, and we learn that by faith you're accepted by God into his family that our sins are cleansed they're washed away by the blood of Christ on the cross and you are declared righteous because of Christ Christ. And, and since our entrance into God's family, this was kind of chapter five, the beginning, we now have peace with God. Um, and even our, our current sufferings, they, they show the proof of the gospel. They help us to appreciate the gospel. They show us that our future hope is unwavering, that is solid. And that's what brings us to our section today in verse six through 11. So let's read through that together. And then we'll work through this passage this morning. Romans chapter five, verse six, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In verse 11, Paul charges us, he says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray and ask God to, uh, to teach us this morning. Father God, we love you. And um, God, what we've sung or said about you already this morning is so true and so good for us. God, a confession that you are the treasure that we could not afford. 
And God, I just, I want to ask again that you would breathe on us and that you would revive us this morning through the teaching of your word. Jesus, all authority is yours in this place. And so, God, I pray that you would um, just control me. God, I pray that um, you would not allow me to say anything that you would not want me to say, but I do pray for divine interruptions. And so, God, that we would hear from you. God, we need um, spiritual eyes and ears this morning. God, would you break our heart for what breaks yours? Um, God, would you be made much of and magnified in this place today? God, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So here's where we're going this morning. We're going we're gonna to talk about three things primarily. Um, we're going to talk about the quality and the depth of love seen specifically in verse chapter in verse 8 there, chapter 5. Um, we're going to look at the quality and depth of that love. And then we're going to look at the effect both now, presently, and also the future effect of the love of God. And then we're going to end with our response to it. So what do, what do we do with these things? So let's start with the quality of, of love or the depth of love. And we measure the quality or the depth of love really in, in, in four ways. The first way that we measure the quality of love is the costliness of the deed. The costliness of the deed. So a, a real love is an active love. It's not enough just to, for me to say to my wife, I love you and never do anything for her or towards her. Uh, and so there has to be some kind of action that's involved in it. We see that with the love of God. There's, but the costliness of the deed, how much did the person sacrifice for us? Because the greater the sacrifice, the deeper the love, right? And you know that when you get a gift and you know that someone puts serious time or energy or money towards it, and it carries a lot of weight. So the first way that we measure the depth or the quality of love is the costliness of the deed. The second is how undeserving we are of the act of love. How undeserving we are of the act of love. So the love that really overwhelms us is the love that comes to us from those that we've deeply wronged. Perhaps you've experienced this. There's someone who's offended you, and rather than them retaliate, uh, what they do is they actually do something good towards you, or they do some kind of service towards you. So that that provides a quality or a depth measure of of love. How undeserving we are of the act act of love. The third is the greatness of the benefit that comes to us by the act of love. The greatness of the benefit that comes to us by the act of love. So love is not just making a sacrifice. Love is making a contribution into someone's life. So I, I have three children, which means that I make a lot more sacrifices now than I did when I didn't have children. But my love towards them is not just me simply saying, well, I guess I have to sacrifice free time, so I'll hang out with you guys today. No, it's... it's I want to spend time with you, and while I'm spending time with you, I want to make a contribution to your life. So the greatness of the benefit that comes to us by the act of love. And then lastly, how free the act of love is. Perhaps this has happened to you. You've had someone in your life who said that they love you only because they were trying to get something from you. And then as soon as they got what they came from, they split. That's not really love. So how free the act of love is. And, and God's love, he didn't exact payment from us for his love. And that's really what we've been talking about this whole time. Is that God didn't say, okay, I'm going to love you as long as you pay me back later. Because we could never pay him back. He didn't exact payment from us. He exacted it from his son, Jesus. And so God's love, we see, he loves us with an ultimate love. And he proves it in the most ultimate way. The death of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus sacrificed his life, not just his time, not just his money, not just his health or convenience. Um, He sacrificed his sinless, holy, wise, divine life. And in all of these measurables and more, 
Jesus loved us in this way, and he loved us in a way that's beyond human comprehension. But Paul tries to write about it or speak about it here. In verse 7, he says, One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. The point is to show that human love rarely reaches high enough to die for someone who has been especially good to us. And almost never human love would sacrifice itself for one who's just simply a moral or principled person. So in other words, you take the two best candidates for love, someone who is the just and the upright person and someone who is the kind and generous person, even kind and generous towards you, and the likelihood that mere human love would give its life for them is still very small. Even the best people, we are not lining up to lay our life down for them. We are self-preservationists. We're not necessarily lining up to give our life away. And that's why when we hear stories of soldiers who give their life for other soldiers or even civilians or parents who lay their lives down for their children, these stories move us because it's not a normative experience. We, We call them heroes. They have done a heroic act. And Paul says God did it, and he didn't do it for good or righteous people. He did it. For his enemies. The depth of God's love for us is seen in this. When he chose to love us, even at the cost of his son Jesus' life, we were not worthy of his love. In fact, we were worthy of his wrath. We deserved his punishment for our sins against him. And his love is shown in this, that his love didn't wait for any moral improvement in us. It wasn't like, hey, you guys clean up your act and then I'll love you. The full sacrifice was made while we were still sinners. In fact, Paul in this section describes our condition. He uses four words. He he says that we were weak. It's the idea of being helpless or sickly, unable to impress or make any contribution to to salvation. When I I, I don't get sick very often, but when I do, I'm absolutely laid up on the couch. And now since we have children, I have to even push the envelope and get a little bit more dramatic to try to get some sympathy at home. But I just, I can't do anything for myself. I am, I'm helpless. I am weak. Secondly, he says we're ungodly, which means that we're irreverent or we did not fear God or have a respect for him. We were godless. And then he says we were sinners. It's this word picture of an archer who takes aim at a target, but he completely misses the target when he loses the arrow. And we miss the mark of God's holiness. We, we fall short. And then he says we're enemies. And this is not just that we were against God. God was against us. We were the target, and rightly so, of God's just and holy wrath. And if God is against us, then it doesn't matter who's for us because we're completely ruined. And then verse 8 kind of becomes this real hinge for this. And and, and it says, verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's extravagant. That's supreme. That's the highest measure of love. In fact, in verse 8 in the Greek, the word his is emphatic. The the phrase his love starts out the sentence in the Greek. And so it it makes it the emphatic. Paul can't say it any stronger. It's like if he was texting you, he'd be texting you in all caps right now. So some of you who do that, you need to stop unless you're serious all the time. But so Paul is saying, this, this is the big, he's saying, look, I can't imagine a greater way to show love than to die for your enemy. Could could you imagine as a parent if you had to give up your child for the sake of your enemy? The point that Paul is making is that God loved us when we were unlovable, we were wicked, rebellious sinners, and that's when he showed love for us. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you doubt doubt his love for you, don't doubt it any longer because it's not based on what you do. Our problem is we start to look at ourselves and we say, I don't know how God could love me today. And I get that. I don't know how God could love you either. But... (laughs) 
but I don't know how God could love any of us. And, and, and the point is, it, it doesn't have anything to do with something in us. That's not why God, God loved us. Because by, by our actions and by our words, our desires, what we deserve is, is wrath. And if it was based on something in us, we would never get it. So that's why Paul doesn't point there. Instead, he points to God's love, and he says it in this emphatic way. He says, look, God doesn't treat you the way that you would treat you because he's not you. So we see the quality of this love. We see the immeasurable depth and height and width and the dimensions of this love of God. But what does, that, what does that do for us? How do I actually make that real in my life? Well, in verse 9 and 10, we see that that love affects our future. We see what it means for our future. So look at verse 9 and 10. This is a question that was happening there in the church, so Paul addresses it. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So Paul's pointing them forward. He's pointing them to the future. They're asking the question, will we be saved from God's judgment? Will we be okay with God in eternity? And so Paul points them back to what God did in the first place. And he said, look, you have been justified by his blood. And you've been reconciled by his death. Two terms there. The first is kind of this legal term, this courtroom jargon, justification, declaration of innocence. And then he says you've been reconciled, which is like a relationship or friendship terminology. Reconciled, you've been put back together, specifically been put back into relationship with God. So this is the, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the, the story. This is why we are a gospel-centered people, because the story is that God chooses to put us back together with him through his son Jesus on the cross because he knew that we could never do enough. That's what we spent so much time talking about already. But I think it's so important that we continue to visit it again a week and week because it just weaves its way not only through this book, but through this book. That God chose to put us back together with him. 2 Corinthians 5, you can go ahead and flip over there just to the right a little bit. Again, if you don't have a Bible, we'll put the text on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 21, Paul um, talks about this a little bit more in his letter to that church, and he says this, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So we see again in this letter as well that God is the one who's doing the reconciling. He's the one who's setting things right. Through his son, Jesus, he's giving us that same ministry. So those of us who have been set right or made right through Jesus, we should be telling others how they can be made right through Jesus too. So we serve, just like on stage here, these guitars are plugged into uh, amplifiers. So we serve also as amplifiers. That is, we are making laughs the story of Jesus setting things right. Well, how do we do that? Well, the short answer and the long answer, and it's a phrase that we use around here, is all of life. So we say all of life is all for Jesus. All of life is dedicated to the amplifying of this message that Jesus is setting things right. 
Oh, what do you mean all of life? I, I mean in your homes, in the way that you parent, in the way that you spend money, in the way that you work, in the quality of your work, at little league practice, at soccer practice. It's showing up and all of life is pointing to and declaring this message and making loud, amplifying the message that Jesus is setting things right, that God chooses to put us back into relationship with him which is really amazing to me that God wants to be put back together with us because there's people on planet earth that don't want to be put back together with us. And God didn't do anything wrong. But he says, I'm going to send my son. He's going to step into your mess and he's going to give you his life so that you can find life in him. He says, you could never do enough. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to make my son who knew no sin, to be sin or to be regarded or treated as sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The truth is that you cannot put yourself back together with with God. You can't work your way. You can't think your way. You can't reason your way. You can't donate your way. You can't attend church your way. You can't serve your way. The gap, the chasm is impossible to cross. How how many of you remember uh, Olympian Carl Lewis? So, Carl Lewis, he was a track champion, won four consecutive gold medals in the long jump. And in case you don't know, the long jump is a man running as fast as he can and then jumping as far as he can. And, and you can win a medal for that in, in the Olympics. So how many did that as a, as a kid? Some of you are going to do that in a puddle outside. So in, in 1991, Carl Lewis jumped his, his best ever. And I, and I measured it actually on the stage before. And so Carl Lewis, in 1991, he jumped from, from this spot right here, okay, from this spot right here, all the way <laughs> to here. A man did that. Now I know some of you are thinking, well, I could do that. <laughs> I did run track in high school. There's no way. There's no way. There's only a few people on the planet that could jump that far. In fact, only one man has jumped further, and it's just by a few inches. And I look at that. I look at that gap, and I said, that's impossible. There's no way that I could ever do that. How far do you think it is between the holy, righteous throne of God and where you have fallen? What could you possibly do to close that gap? Romans 3, we worked through that already. It puts us all in the same boat. We're all staring down this impossible gap. We see that the law of God came as 10 simple rules. The first was don't value anything above God. Don't value anything more than you value God. We can stop there. So we spent so much time on that because Paul was saying to us, and Paul's saying to the church, look, can we just stop kidding ourselves and thinking that we can be a people that can make our way back to God? So why spend so much time on this? Why get, why get into all this? Because this is the grounds of our future hope that we will be saved from wrath and saved by Jesus' life. Wrath is not an essential attribute of God. Wrath is a function of God's holiness when man rebelled. If God is holy and sinless and pure and perfect, he has to pour out judgment on our wicked rebellion. How else would you have him respond? There is no other response. It's not just someone who's flying off the handle because he got cut off in traffic. His wrath is a proper response to the offense of his holy character. And so what Paul is saying here in this section, especially in these couple verses here, he's done the hard thing of loving us while we're his enemies. And so the easy thing is now that we are his and we belong to him for us to be secure through eternity. Paul says that's the easy thing. He's making this argument from from greater to to lesser. And, And he said, look, if God's already done the greater thing, loving us, 
while we were his enemies, he'll do the lesser things, securing us while we are his. And that produces a future security. Okay, well, okay, future security, I get it, but how is that going to affect me today? You've got you to help me out today. How is this helpful? How is this practical? What, what, what do I do with this? I'm prone to exaggerate um, statements, but this is everything. When we see how great the love of the Father is towards us, shown, made known, proven in Christ, it is central to everything. When I know that my future is secure because of God's love towards me, it frees me to live the life that I'm called to live. It not only brings me security for the life to come, but it secures my identity today. You did not receive the love of God because what you did was good. But being loved by God calls you and empowers you to do what is good. I I pastor a ministry called 710, which is uh, a community of young adults and college students. We meet Tuesday nights in the commons. And uh, this summer, we went through the Psalms, which are songs written by this guy named David. And now in the fall, we're actually looking at David. We're looking at the artist. And we've been talking about him. And we, we chose David not just not because he was a guy who did it all right. In fact, far from it. He makes some pretty colossal mistakes in his life. But David seemed to taste and grasp the love of God in a really unique way. And one of the evidence of that was a song that he wrote, Psalm 139. So you can turn to Psalm 139, kind of right in the middle of your Bible there, Psalm 139. Again, we'll have the text up for you. Psalm 139 kind of illustrates David's relationship with God and how he seemed to have this really intimate relationship with him. Psalm 139 verse 1 says this, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. So you can tell right off the bat that it's personal. It's close. It's, he's intimately acquainted with, with David's life. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before, uh, uh, even, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in bef- behind and before you and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The the thing about David is that he lives this life where he actually kind of tests this psalm out. Because there are points where it does seem that at one point he's going to flee from the presence of God. It, It does seem that at one point David makes his bed in hell. But he lives long enough to see that even in those moments, God is still faithful towards him. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. I love this, verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. The verse 14 tells us that David understands that God delighted in him before he was even born. He was fearfully set apart. There's a big difference between someone who understands the Lord delights in you before you were born and God delighting in you because of what you do. David says, God, you love me before I even existed. Verse 15, 
My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, you saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. He says in verse 18, he said, if you're not the end of all of this, you're still with me. I mean, what I love about David is that David spent time sitting around thinking about how awesome it was that God had him on his mind. David was blown away by the thought that God thought about him. One of the reasons I think that we struggle with this and having an identity rooted in how much God loves us is because we are so quick to forget. We think it's just one of these things that we could just kind of take a cursory glance at and say, okay, yeah, I got it. And, and so maybe, like, for you, the only time you hear a message like this is the 40 minutes a week that you spend here. Maybe there's a little bit of time in between, or you might kind of crack open God's word, you hear that. But we're bombarded by so many contrarian messages that, that all week that we need to be constantly reminded. But the thing about David is that he meditated on this day in and day out, and he was consumed with it. This is so key for us. Do you know how loved you are by God? And I'm not just talking about like a mental ascent to it. I'm talking about like it shapes your life. Understanding how loved you are, finding your identity in that love, not based on what you've done, but based on God's love and his grace, that's the whole ballgame. There are, of course, many remarkable things about Jesus, but I, I think one of the most remarkable is that he grasped the love of the Father in a way that we don't. In Matthew chapter 3, there's this scene. Jesus is about 30 years old. He's about to begin his ministry, and he comes upon his cousin, John the Baptist, who's baptizing people. And John the Baptist says to him, that's Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus says, you have to baptize me. And so then John does, and at that time when he comes out, and, and this is before anything, Jesus hasn't done anything. He hasn't, no water to wine, no, you know, feeding the 5,000, no healing people, no casting out demons, no cross, no resurrection. He hasn't done any of these things. But he comes out of the water in chapter 3, verse 16 and 7, and there's a voice from heaven. It's the voice of his father, and it says, this is my beloved son with whom or in whom I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't done any of the things that he would eventually do, but he was fully convinced of the Father's voice. He was always talking about his dependency on the Father, and, and, and he trusted the voice of, of his Father in a way that no one else before or since has done. He fully believed the Father. And so when this pronouncement is made, Jesus believes this, and he lives a life that is defined by this, and unlike the rest of us, he never forgets. He's always aware of how completely loved he is and how his father delights in him. And his ministry comes from the overflow of that. You see, there's a big difference between this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and this is my beloved son by whom I am well pleased. By whom means, oh, the activity or the things that you've done, that's what pleases me. In whom means I, I love you for you. He accepted him before all the great things that he would do, including the cross and the resurrection. And he fully understands this, and he has a security and identity rooted in the revelation of the Father's love for him. And then I, what happens after that in chapter 4 is really interesting. I mean, it's not like there's this big party, like Jesus kind of has this launch, you know, he's launching his campaign, no parades, nothing like that. He goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And, and if you know the story, he's, he's led by the Spirit, and Satan says, look, I know you haven't eaten in a while. Why don't you turn those stones to bread? 
Why don't you throw yourself off the building? I know God will send some angels to come get you. So if you just bow down, everything that you see here, this will be yours. And Satan starts with the phrase every time, if you are the son of God. If. If you are who God says you are. This this story in, in Matthew chapter 4 is about deeper things than devil worship. The three temptations challenge the very identity of Jesus. And Satan says, look, prove your value. Prove your worth. And at its core, it's the same temptation that we face too, where we have to prove ourselves outside of uh, or as opposed to or in addition to the voice of God in our lives that says that we are beloved. When we're tempted and when we sin, we say this behavior, this activity, this course of action means more to me than the voice of God in my life that says that I am loved by him. You're saying, I have to add something to it. It's just just not enough. And And we hear, if you are who God says you are, prove it. We spend our whole lives, some of us, trying to prove something, trying to prove ourselves to other people. We want to find the right person who's going to celebrate us enough or accept us enough or say that they love us enough. And we're looking for some person to fill the void that only the love of the Father can fill. And so we go through life wearing ourselves out and wearing other people out because we're pressing on them to do something that only the Father can do. We need to know who we are and how much we are loved and how those things don't depend on our performance. And and this is why I say this is everything, because as long as you don't get that, uh, you're not going to progress or grow in your relationship with him. And you will not grow in your love for him. And it's not about stuff that you do. You can do all kinds of great stuff. There's lots of people that are in ministry doing great things. And at the end of this life, they will say, Lord, Lord. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. Because you never got it. Understanding how cherished you are is not dependent on you getting it right, on you doing it right every time. In Luke chapter 15, there's this great story. It's about this son who goes to his father and says, Dad, I want my inheritance. And, and the father is so gracious. He knows what the son is going to do. He knows he's going to take this chunk of change and ruin his life, but the father lets him go do it on his dime. And the son goes and he does what any young man would do when he gets a windfall of money and he blows it. And he finds himself in the pig pen eating corn husks. And there's a, there's a place in Luke chapter 15, and, and, and the phrase says, when he came to himself, he remembers what it was like to be in his father's house, and that's when he takes these steps towards home. He remembered who he was. He remembered who he had been. He remembered who he was supposed to be. He remembered home. When people, uh, sometimes when they come to Jesus, they describe it as coming home, even though they've never been in that home before. But, but their eyes are opened up, and they're awake, and they're aware of who they are and who they are supposed to be. And there's this suspicion out there that I'm known and I'm loved with this great unconditional love. It's about coming awake to the love of the Father. It's prizing Jesus and prizing, because of him, you're opened up to the love of the Father, so it's prizing Jesus above everything else. There's an author and and pastor named John Piper, and he recently had this devotional thing that went out, and he was talking about David's sin with Bathsheba. So David committed adultery with Bathsheba, eventually led to murder. Um, And and David writes Psalm 51 kind of in response to that moment in his life. And he says, He's crying out to God. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And Piper asks the question, why doesn't he pray for the things that maybe we would pray for? Like an accountability partner. Or God, would you, you know, keep my eyes uh, from, you know, seeing sexual things? Would you free my mind and give me some sexual restraint? And, And because the reason is he knows that the sexual sin is a symptom, not the idea not the disease. 
People give way to sexual sin because they don't have the fullness of joy and gladness in Christ. Their spirits are not steadfast and firm and established. They waver. They are enticed and they give way because God does not have the place in our feelings and thoughts that he should because we are unaware of how much he loves us. So we need to wake up to the love of God the way that David was awake to it. David did wicked things. He wasn't a guy that got it all right. But David understood how much God loved him and his identity was entrenched in that. When when Tim talked about repentance, true repentance a couple weeks ago, and David was in there, this is what brought David to repentance because he said, look, I have failed. I have failed miserably, but God, your love is so much bigger than my failure. And my life is not identified or secured in my activity. It's secured in your immeasurable love. Now, I have to bring up this question because I know there's people in the room that think like this. There, are always, there always are. You say, well, okay, Paul, this seems kind of like touchy-feely type stuff, man. I mean, we talk about something a little bit hard in this. And by the way, won't this line of thinking lead us to abuse grace? Like, I like what you're saying. Kind of makes me feel good. But if you're just telling people this, won't this lead people to abuse grace? If you don't understand grace and how beautiful it is and how costly it was to Christ and how undeserving you are to receive it, you will abuse it. So I would say to you, if you abuse it, then you don't get it. Your identity cannot be attached to something that you hold with such low esteem. Understanding how much God loves you empowers you to do what is right, not continue in sin. The prodigal son did not say, I am so loved by my father. I'll go see what other trouble I can get in. I'm so loved by my father. I think I'll find the next pig pen to crawl into. He said, I am so loved by my father. And he takes a step towards home. The height and the depth and the dimensions of God's love and God's grace, it makes me tremble. It doesn't make me think, what else can I get away with? Um, my family and I, we were on vacation for the past 10 days, and the place that we stayed was just incredible. We had this um, fire we would build every night, made s'mores with the kids, and um, the sunset over the lake, and it just was like all the colors of oranges and blues and purples, and it was just beautiful. And I just sat there, and I like, we would tell our kids about... This is what God has made, and look what he's created, and the stars would come out, and I'd try to teach my kids about constellation, but that's all made up anyway. I don't know how anyone ever figured out what shape any of that stuff was in, because it's like everywhere. I don't know how you just couldn't figure it out. And we'd say, God made stars, and God made rainbows, and God made all things. My daughter's three, you know, she's got s'more stuck to her face. She's like, did God make chocolate? I was like, yes, he gets credit for chocolate as well. But I see all that stuff, and I... And and I tremble under the goodness and the love of God. Understanding how deeply we are loved by God is everything. And we understand around here that it's a revelation that only he can give. And that's our prayer collectively as a church every Sunday that you who are here who do not yet know the love of God, that God would reveal it to you. We can talk about it, describe it, sing songs about it. I could do a puppet show for you if I wanted to. But if God doesn't reveal it, you'll never get it. And so we pray that over you. As I close, there's, a, there's an author who makes this statement, and he, and he says this. He says, the difference between the real believers and the nominal believers is that on the day of judgment, when everyone stands before God, the question will be, did you believe that I loved you? Did you believe that I desired you? Now, this is just kind of his hypothesis on it. But I like what he says. He says, the real believers will say, yes, Lord, we believed. 
and we shaped our lives in response to knowing your love in that way. I, I want to share one story with you as we, as we close. And I've really kind of wrestled for the past couple of weeks whether or not to even share this. I, I brought this in the 710, but God's just really been using it, um, really just been breaking my heart with it. So I want to introduce you to someone. This is Julia. Uh, and Julia is just a normal 20-year-old junior at a college in Georgia, um, just kind of a, a normal person. I've actually never met Julia, but I was friends with her sister. And on August 15th, um, I attended Julia's funeral. I didn't actually go. She attends a church in Georgia, but the church uh, streamed online her funeral, and I got an opportunity to watch it. And I was locked in for an hour and a half on one of the greatest worship services I've ever been a part of. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution did a little story on her. She was um, involved in young life, and she worked with young teenage girls. She was involved in this outreach uh, in the greater Atlanta area called Safe House to, to homeless women, and she would take them socks, and she would wash their feet, and she'd try to get them to dance with her to kind of get their mind off of their place in life. And her family said some statement about her in the article. They said, people who knew Julia understood her motivation for doing everything was solely to bring glory to God. She wanted to become a social worker. That's what she was going to school for. But she lived her life like a full-time ministry. And the family said, look, she had problems just like every other 20-year-old girl, college student. Her sister made the statement this about her. It's not that she had all of her stuff together, but she had the right stuff together. When I was watching the funeral, they did kind of like this video montage thing for her, and one of the clips was her journal. So on August 4th, she was in a car accident. She was in a coma for a week on the 10th. She died. Her funeral was on the 15th. On August 2nd, 2013, this was her journal entry. Christ is enough for me. Christ is more than enough. In everything, Christ is enough. Jesus knows my heart. Jesus calls me his beloved. Jesus leads me. Jesus laughs with me. My trust is in my Savior. My hope is in my Deliverer. My passion is from my Creator. The only opinion that matters is the Lord's. I am clothed in his righteousness. I am pure and holy. I lean on my Father's strength. I am completely loved. I am completely full. I am completely satisfied in Jesus. I am forgiven, and I live out of abundant grace. I live an abundant life. And then she said, finally, by being rooted in these truths, my life is an overflow of how good my God is. And her last entry in her journal on August 2nd, 2013, she said, I long for heaven to be with my Jesus. She didn't have all of her stuff together, but she had the right stuff together. Church, we don't have to know everything, but we have to be gripped by the love of the Father and let our lives be an overflow of how much he loves us. That his love is deep, it's immeasurable, that it secures our future, that it secures our identity here and now, and we make that message of who Jesus is and what he has done and how he has opened up the love of the Father for us, and we make it loud in everything that we do. Let me pray as Jeremy comes and leads us in communion. God, we love you. I thank you for um, stories like Julia's. God, I thank you for stories like David's, and God, what we see in Luke 15, the prodigal son, but I thank you most of all for Jesus. And I thank you that Jesus was so intimately tied to you, Father. 
He just, he loved you with everything and his life was rooted in that and lived out of that. And so God, as your church, I pray that we would be like that too. God, we thank you for um, just what you've shown us this morning. It's in your name we pray.